This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So metabolic syndrome is an interesting one because everyone's heard of it, syndrome X as it's also called, yet people don't necessarily know how to diagnose it. And it's another condition which is actually a collection of risk factors is the best way that I like to describe it, that increases somebody's chance of developing not just metabolic dysfunction, but also heart disease and stroke as well as diabetes. Well, most of the patients that I see would fit in the overweight to obese category, and they'd also have several of these other risk factors. So they unknowingly have metabolic syndrome. I think with metabolic syndrome, most importantly, is that we look at the facts that they are aging their body and they need that antioxidant protection. And to understand that as they're losing that visceral fat, there's toxins being released. And I think that sometimes can be missed where people go, awesome, you're losing weight, but they're actually causing a lot of damage in their body whilst they're losing weight. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank, and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In Season 2 of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at cardiometabolic health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we tackle metabolic syndrome. We talk again to naturopath Karen Squires, functional dietitian Robbie Clark, and we introduce naturopath and cardiac nurse Lisa Fiaccini. Squires is a naturopath specialising in cardiometabolic conditions. She says metabolic syndrome as a diagnosis often flies under the radar. There has actually been like several different definitions over the years, uh, but the most recent one and the one that, that we use in Australia is it's a cluster of metabolic conditions. So it includes the following. There's five things And to be diagnosed as having metabolic syndrome, you need to have three out of the five. So elevated waist circumference is one, elevated triglycerides or having drug treatment for high triglycerides is two, low HDL, that good cholesterol, or having drug treatment for low HDL is three, elevated blood pressure or having drug treatment for elevated blood pressure is four, and elevated fasting blood glucose uh, or having drug treatment for that. So they're the five criteria. And if you have any of those three, uh, sorry, if you have three of any of those five, then that is a diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. Do you need to send them to a doctor for a diagnosis or do you just treat them 
yourself. We don't diagnose as such, but once people have three of these out of the five, I don't refer on to a GP. I just, I treat metabolic syndrome myself. But often people will have, you know, they would have been to their GP and they're on high blood pressure medication or they're on metformin or, you know, they're, they're on something else. So I think they feel that the GP is treating them for that anyway. They're not aware of metabolic syndrome as a syndrome, that if you have three out of these five things that you are, you know, each of those associated conditions has an independent effect and that's why they might be getting treated for it. But it's the clustering together um, that they become synergistic, you know, making the risk of developing cardiovascular disease greater. And that's what they're not aware of. It is quite a serious condition, isn't it? It is quite a serious condition. And people don't realise that they may have metabolic syndrome because they're on medication for a couple of those parameters in there. So, for example, high blood pressure and fasting blood glucose. Uh, they may be on antihypertensives and metformin or something like that for the, the fasting glucose. So they think because those numbers are in a healthy range, because they're on the medication, means they don't fit in to the criteria of metabolic syndrome. But they do because it's it's mm. if you're receiving drug treatment to keep those levels in a healthy zone, then you are considered to have one, you know, that's a criteria in itself. So you can actually have people who have type 2 diabetes and also have metabolic syndrome they can actually have that together. So they can kind of have that double whammy because they've, they've got the large waste, they're on antihypertensives and they've got the elevated fasting blood glucose and they've also been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So they've actually got both. Do you find that those medications are working for them to keep those levels in range or do you find some a proportion of your patients are uncontrolled by the medication? Some of the medications will like the two that you've talked about, for example, um, antihypertensives and blood glucose medications, they will keep them within range, but it doesn't address the insulin resistance and it doesn't address the endothelial dysfunction necessarily. So they can still be predisposed to um, a worsening situation down the track. Endothelial dysfunction is the link between the cardiovascular disease and things like diabetes and metabolic syndrome, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and the endothelial dysfunction is occurring well before the onset of the signs and symptoms of cardiovascular disease. You, you know, that's kind of that um, subacute kind of chronic inflammatory response that can fly under the radar. So that can be occurring well before we see signs and symptoms. Yeah. And for example, the insulin resistance correlates with um, endothelial dysfunction even in people who haven't gone on to get type 2 diabetes yet because it dysregulates pathways that are associated with vasodilation and vasoconstriction and it causes the vascular walls to become hyperreactive. So insulin resistance also causes platelet adhesiveness, you know, which combines with the inflammatory cytokines produced by the adipose tissue to cause like sticky blood as well. So you can see that it's kind of like a, a, a domino effect, which is why it's important to, in metabolic syndrome, to address all those, in, you know, the individual factors. 
I may have someone come to see me and they, they don't qualify for the, the tag metabolic syndrome yet. They may have two out of the three um, criteria, but they might be very close to getting the third. And even if they're not, even if they do only have the two, we still need to deal with those because they're still individually an unhealthy situation. It's when you get those three or more together that it becomes synergistic and a, and a, and a bigger problem. Lisa Fiaccini is a cardiac nurse now practising as a naturopath. There's nothing better in cardiac nursing than when you're called at two in the morning because a patient's having a heart attack and they come into the angiography suite and you put in a stent and open their artery and you've given them a life that they otherwise wouldn't have had. So that part of medicine I love, but I would find that after I had my three children 10 years later, my patients were making bonnets and cardigans and knitting them up for my children. And that's because they really were in palliative type care. So as much as they were being treated for their cardiovascular disease, that was their life. That was what was in front of them that they were prepared to live with. And for me, I felt I would rather have been able to empower them or help them change their diet. Like I understood that what they were eating was causing them to be where they were. Um, you know, they were overweight, they weren't exercising. The more that they're on certain medication, it affects other organs. Then they're needing other medication. And then their lives changed to a point that when I was at the Royal Prince Alfred, I was the clinical nurse of the heart failure unit because that's, you know, they got to the point where they could barely get out of bed. You know, it's summer, hot summer, they can have hot ice chips because they can't have water because they can't, their heart can't even cope with that extra strain of fluid volume in their blood. So I decided from there that I needed to understand more about the body and learn more because every time I sat with a patient to talk about, well, I know you're told to have, you know, your two slices of bread a day or a little bit of pasta or rice as a carbohydrate, that wasn't correct in my eyes and I wanted them to change. But at the same time, you know, we're so under-resourced that you don't have time to do that. So um, I just wanted to be in a position where I could do that. Whatever the person comes in with, it's more than just that. It's about the lifestyle change and how we should actually be living mm. our lives, isn't it? Absolutely, because it's every day. It's not, it's not like taking a tablet when you're looking at naturopathy. You're really changing their life. And, and you need to understand also what the patients come to you for. And I think I mentioned like that patient that I had with heart failure and I was so excited and I was working in a medical centre when I first finished studying my naturopathy and I had a patient with, um, she had an ejection fraction of 30. Now you and I probably have 65 or more. So it's the ability of your heart to actually pump the blood around the body. So that's considered heart failure, meaning her heart's barely pumping, her energy levels are low and she was put on a disability pension because that would be the rest of her life. Yet she was only 40, quite young. And she came to me just because the doctors sent her. She didn't really have a reason. And I started to treat her adrenals and make food more medicinal. So rather than living on that licorice, that real adrenal exhaustion and the beer, which is just a pure sign of her mineral deficiencies and cravings, um, I also gave her herbal tonics to support the cardiac function and strength of her heart and the oxygenation in her heart. 
And within six months, the I remember her cardiologist saying, your heart function's the same as mine, like you've no longer got you know, heart failure, really. We need to, so they kept it for another six months and then she was taken off the disability pension. And she came in and put the herbal bottle on my desk and just said, I can't believe you've done this and was furious. And I just felt heartbroken. I thought, I'm waiting for this bunch of flowers or this wow, you're amazing. (laughs) That was probably my (laughs) ego talking. But really, I just, it helped me realise that you're dealing with people's lives and they may not, you know, they need psychological treatment as well because they've been given like a death sentence. This is a huge shock for them. So it taught me as well that things need to move slower and there needs to be a lot of education. It's interesting. It's such an interesting story that not everybody wants to get well. <laughs> no, it's the first question I ask now. So when you've got someone in front of you, what kind of testing are you doing? I do lots of face reading, iridology and signs and symptoms. You know, are you actually hungry or are you getting the jitters? Oh, I'm getting the jitters. I mean, that's a pure sign. Um, of what's going mm. on in their body. So I will do the inflammatory markers, you know, the CRP and the ESR. I will do their homocysteine level to see that inflammation. We know homocysteine rises at around 3, 4 in the morning every day. That can be a predictor of heart disease or inflammation that affects the heart. And the funny thing is, as a cardiac nurse, we've always got an extra nurse on at that time. So if you're a night duty nurse, there's the extra nurse that comes on because if you're going to be doing resuscitations, you're going to be doing it at that time of the morning. So we've got extra staff. So we medically, we understand it, but we can't treat it. That's that's the difference. So I also will do um, the HbA1c and your blood sugar levels and triglycerides. Triglycerides for me are huge with the liver function. And can you tell me what you're looking for with some of those markers? Yeah, so um, obviously under 10 for your homocysteine. Triglycerides, I'm a bit fussy. I want them under 0.9. And that's because that's a signal of what you're, how much sugars you're actually eating and that's going to affect the LDL. So it's really important for me to see where those levels are at. I also, with your um, HDL, LDL and triglycerides, some card- some doctors, not the cardiologists, the doctors will say, oh, it's, you know, 4.3, it's low, it's dangerous, or it's 3.2. Well, is it really? Yes, because if, uh, no, it's low, it's excellent, sorry, they say it's excellent. I see it as dangerous because it's, your HDLs are those beautiful liquidy fats that are oxygenating and supporting and healing the body. We want them when we want them to be quite high. We do want the triglycerides low, but the healthier your diet, the larger the boats carrying the the fats. So your LDLs may slightly rise. So very low or very high is dangerous to me. We just want it around the five, the five point five ratio. What were the other ones? Uh, blood sugar level. Well, really, they have to be fasting no more than twelve hours, no exercise before, and I like that to be around four to five as well. These are preventable conditions. So why are we missing people if, you know, if we were testing them early enough, why are we missing them? Because remember, so as a nurse in a cardiac ward, what are what are we testing them for? We're testing them to see if they are pre-diabetic or if they have cardiovascular disease. So that's what we're testing them for, for that treatment. We're not testing them to say, oh, we will mention you're pre-diabetic or you don't have cardiovascular disease, but you're on your way there or you're on your way to heart failure. But they're not equipped to then say, well, let's change your diet and let's make these changes. So they're not preventing, they're just managing the disease. 
So they're looking for the disease and they're managing it. So what we do on the naturopathic side is completely the opposite. Yes, we're looking for the disease, but we're looking at how, what brought you to that level of illness? What have you done every day that's got you there? And how can we make those changes? How can we stop that insulin resistance? How can we stop those simple carbohydrates constantly being eaten? How can we help your energy to start wanting to do some exercise? And it's not as easy as going to the gym because when you've got that visceral fat that's got toxins and you start releasing that, you're releasing toxins into the system. So you've got an already overburdened system that then toxins are released. That's why after week five, everyone, people get sick, fall off the bandwagon and say, I can't do it anymore. It's that understanding that they need antioxidant protection and they need a diet that's got rich antioxidants and fibre and that's helping that elimination process as well as making that shift. Is there a particular diet that you use or you individualise it? Um, What do you do? So all my diets are individualised to the patients. I don't have one particular diet for everyone. Uh, it's the least diet, they call it, because it is quite similar. <laughs> so, um, so it is whole foods. It is vegetarian, plant-based. And then I just slowly, over a seven-week plan, will get them to slowly start introducing it. So often because the bowels need to be cleared before we start introducing anything, I will start with stewed fruit or high enzymatic digestible fruits to help with that um, high fibre and digestive ability to and get their bowels going. From there, we move to their lunches and dinners. We make sure there's your four cups of veggies and we make sure we've got we try different things. So we'll have black rice or brown rice or some people we might just start on white rice depending on what their diet has been otherwise. You know, their whole oats, introducing foods that have higher essential fats like your sardines. You know, my 90-year-olds that would come into hospital just for routine testing, I'd call them the sardine and porridge club because I'd always ask, what do you eat every day? What's your lifestyle like? And they always had a group, whether it was a tennis or bocce or something they were involved in, and it was always porridge in the morning and some type of sardine or a great source of essential fats at lunch. After they get through to week five or six, that's when I really include those antioxidants and we will have garlic and it has to be raw, obviously, to release that and and make sure it's medicinal. You know, they've got their herbs in their garden for their antioxidants, their antivirals, their antiparasitics. You know, we're using the herbs medicinally to start helping as an antioxidant and a digestive and to support the immune system as they're losing their weight and making these dietary changes. And then obviously your turmeric. I make a paste with turmeric. I make a paste with their herbs. I make special uh, drinks and ice cubes with their ginger so they can easily pop them into their drinks. It's just a way of making it a lifestyle, but an easy lifestyle. And as depending on, you know, what seasons we're in, like artichokes are coming out now, definitely. They're good for blood sugar regulation and they've got high fibre. They'd be introduced into the diet. So every Monday night there's a Zoom where I'm in the kitchen and teaching them how to cook, but keeping them on track. Where do you stand on supplementation? Do you supplement anyone at all or do you try and do it through food? So I always, with my clients at the beginning, will say my preference is food is medicine. But if you're coming to me and you just can't do it and you feel, no, I need I need some supplements, I will happily give them supplements at the beginning. But I do explain to them, this isn't, don't think after six months you're going to stay on them because you this this will help give you some nutrients, give you some energy, let you feel a bit empowered while I'm educating you, but then we'll slowly make dietary changes. 
Because you can imagine, you know, if you're a cardiac patient, you've been faced with a life sentence. You know that's the rest of your life. And as much as those medication are amazing, it keeps them alive. It keeps their their heart functioning or gets rid of the extra fluid in their body. So that's wonderful. But why did it get there in the first place? So they're overwhelmed. They're exhausted. They've got mineral and vitamin and magnesium deficiencies when they come to you. It's very hard for them to go, oh, I'm going to go to the market and buy all these vegetables. They've got no energy. So if you can support them in any way with supplementation and give them some antioxidants and help them with some herbs that's supporting their adrenals, you're helping them to then make these changes. And so can you give me an idea of or an example of one of the stories of one of your patients who've been through your your seven-week program? He came and he literally was having four coffees a day, high cholesterol, put on medication for his cholesterol and high blood pressure. He had a blood pressure before his medication about 180 on 110. He was having half a bottle of vodka at night and during the day he'd eat whatever he could get his hands on, be a pie or a parsley. So after educating him, we started off just with chamomile tea. So I said, you can have your coffee, but I want chamomile tea first. His tongue was black from all the coffee that he'd drink. So we just started with chamomile tea and we included the four cups of veggies throughout the day, which he just thought was hilarious to even hear about it. And he would wake up at three o'clock every morning with a Bristol stool chart of five and six and it would just blur everywhere. And that was his normal life. He didn't know any different. He didn't believe it could be any different. Mm. So by making that change he and giving him minerals and a cardiovascular supplement, he naturally started to just want the chamomile tea. He said, oh, I've stopped the coffee. I'm loving this chamomile tea. And his face from getting that, you know, all those liver lines and kidney lines started to become calm. Mm. And it was lovely to actually witness. Then his lunches, I actually let him have corned beef for lunch, which normally I wouldn't. But like I said, it's individualised. If you're having pastries and, you know, you're not used to ever having rice or you're used to having your white bread, we need to make a change that facilitates their day-to-day living. And that was easy for his wife to cook up the corned beef and slice it up. And then he just took that with some rice cakes and some veggies and some hummus. And he started having that for lunches. And then we would make some porridge. So um, in the afternoon, if he had night duty, we'd go porridge with your um, hemp seeds and your blueberries and we'd put some greens in there. So I wanted to start getting that anti-inflammatory, antioxidant because I knew he started losing weight and he would be having that with a uh, an oat milk or almond milk in the afternoon. And then we started the nuts and seeds and before we knew it, he was on a whole food diet, you know, but that took weeks and weeks and weeks. And I remember his doctor rang me and went, I can't, I don't know what you do to these people, but once again, you know, cholesterol's down, blood pressure's down. But what you need to be mindful of, as he's losing weight and as his blood pressure is naturally dropping because we've got more nitrates in the system, we've got more oxygenation, the blood vessels are becoming a lot more elastic, that's risky. And that's where I understand where the doctors come from. If I'm not monitoring that, he will wake up in the morning, take his blood pressure tablet, which he probably may not need anymore, but that's for the doctor to decide, and fall over because his blood pressure is too low. And that's what can happen. And that's why this all needs to be monitored correctly. And they need to be working with the GP as well. So that then when his blood pressure is being monitored weekly by myself and seen by his GP, we go, oh, well, it's starting to drop a bit. Oh, you're getting a bit dizzy in the afternoon. I think it's really important the GP starts monitoring that. 
But then he also has to take the onus to maintain that diet because that diet is now his tablet. That diet's keeping him in a preventative measure of going back into the you know, roller coaster of heart disease and diabetes. So he needs to understand where he's at and the GP also needs to constantly be monitoring him. So it's not as easy as just helping them. The monitoring is important. That's the beauty of, of your qualifications, isn't it? That you can kind of traverse both worlds and really give the best to the patients that you see. I understand the doctors and where they're coming from. You know, at Royal Prince Alfred, we had a cardiologist that was bringing in a brand new treatment for diabetes where they would put them on a insulin pump and start to see, you know, how the blood sugar level responds. And it was going to be a new treatment. And I'd say to them, what about if we take the sugar out of the diet? Like, why are we going, let's check the insulin and then give them amount of sugar to make sure that the insulin isn't too much for what they're eating. I know, but this is how they're taught. And as much as in my brain, it didn't make sense. They would say to me, Lisa, if you start changing their diet, then how do they know if they're not educated correctly, how much insulin to have? And that that could be the death of them. You know, that's dangerous. It's not, it's not giving them a warning if they're going into a hypo. Unless they understand that sign and symptom, it can be quite dangerous. And that's why they have to be monitored. And I, I wouldn't, an insulin-dependent diabetic has to really understand their body, understand the feeling of a hypo, and they have to be prepared to work with me and their GP if they want to be following a, a, a change in diet, because some nights they may not need the insulin or some nights they need a lower dose. And if that's the case, I need to know that their GP is happy with that and they understand the feeling of that. Otherwise, you've got glucose running around causing inflammation in their body that may not be connected with the insulin, or you've got high insulin, not enough glucose, and it's causing them to have a hypo, which is fatal. All agree vegetable oils are one of the biggest drivers. Curran Squires. There's heaps of evidence out there that shows that omega-3, omega-6 ratios are really out of balance. And that imbalance is driven by the omega-6 vegetable oils, you know. They're very pro-inflammatory. They promote oxidative stress, oxidised LDLs, which are atherogenic, that chronic low-grade inflammation, and they're likely linked to coronary heart disease because of those things. These omega-3, uh, sorry, omega-6 oils are often used in the highly processed and fast foods. But it's a new kid on the block. It's these ultra-processed foods that are a huge issue. And these foods with their inflammatory seed oils go undergo multiple physical, biological, chemical processes and I believe they currently represent as much as up to 60% of the total daily energy intake in Western diets at the moment. So they're, they're high in sugar as well. They're high in energy. Definitely those omega-6s, uh, unhealthy fats and oils. And they're low in all the stuff we're looking for. They're low in fibre. They're low in protein. They're low in vitamins and minerals. And uh, as I said, they also have chemicals to prolong the shelf life. And it's actually, uh, one thing that's really interesting is the chemicals that they use to prolong the shelf life have been, it prolongs the shelf life because it prevents the proliferation of microorganisms. And this is where they're thought to have a detrimental effect on the gut microbiome because they're preventing, you know, the health of those microorganisms once you've, once you've eaten it. So I, I think those omega-6s are hidden in 
so many foods and I really encourage people to eat food as close to nature as possible, so as less intervention as possible. That's an example of the misinformation that people that, that's out there and that, that confuses people, isn't it? Because, you know, it's kind of mar- these are marketed as healthy fats when in fact they're not. I'm sure there's many naturopaths out there that could say the same thing, that their patients have been told to use that particular margarine that's high in plant sterols. I just say the plants, like cut out the middleman. That's a hydrogenated, unhealthy fat And the only reason it works is because of the plant sterols. If you eat the plants, you're not, you know, and there's a a dosage that goes with that margarine as well. You need to eat two tablespoons a day. I say just bake some beautiful vegetables in a tomato-based sauce with lots of olive oil and um, there's your plant sterols and your healthy fats. Don't rely on two tablespoons of an industrialised omega-6 margarine. So, Karen, just um, digging a little bit deeper into the herbs that you might use in these cases. I really like using berberine-containing herbs. There is a lot of research out there, and I've I've seen I've seen it in clinic the benefits of using those herbs. So, like uh, philodendron uh, and other berberine-containing herbs, they're able to really modulate the metabolic parameters so I find it really helpful in metabolic syndrome and also they've been shown to have a bit of benefit on waist circumference as well Uh, and triglycerides insulin secretion insulin sensitivity so I really love that Uh, nigella is another herb that's fabulous for hyperglycemia and that that postprandial hyperglycemia if we need to get that that down a little bit uh, it's also good for, you know, free radicals and improving antioxidant capacity and therefore reducing the risk of complications. It's also been shown to have a little bit of an effect on reducing HbA1c and insulin resistance. And Tinospora, I've used that before as well for its hypoglycemic um, ability and it also has an effect on insulin releasing and insulin mimicking. So that also can help improve that postprandial hyperglycemia. It's even been shown to have some benefit in diabetic um, neuropathy. That was a rat study, and I don't like to quote rat studies, but sometimes (laughs) sometimes we are able to extrapolate that out a little bit. Um, I love turmeric. Uh, It's antioxidant. It's cardioprotective. It's anti-inflammatory. It's hypoglycemic to a degree as well, and it, it even helps protect beta cells. So I love turmeric. As um, so, there are a few of the the herbs and cinnamon. It's really great in metabolic syndrome. Some nutritionals that I might use include CoQ10. It's a great antioxidant, cardioprotective, um, can improve um, HDL and triglycerides. Zinc deficiency. That's a really interesting one. I really like using zinc. Um, zinc deficiency is in in and of itself is actually a risk factor for obesity and type 2 diabetes. So I like to make sure um, there's some zinc in there. Uh, vitamin D, there's an inverse relationship between uh, vitamin D deficiency and type 2 diabetes. And we know in overweight patients, because vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, that it's sequestered in fat cells and not available for use by the body. So I like to make sure that people who are overweight really have their vitamin D, their serum vitamin T levels up 
nice and high. And fish oil. Love using fish oil as well as an anti-inflammatory and to help modulate, you know, blood fat, fat levels as well. Functional dietitian Robbie Clark always prescribes exercise for his patients with metabolic syndrome. So regardless of the diagnostic criteria, there is absolute agreement across all the research that has been done that weight reduction and increased exercise is actually the frontline therapy for metabolic syndrome. So this goes back to what I was saying earlier about if you're making small changes in somebody's lifestyle, let it be exercise first and foremost for metabolic syndrome and particularly resistance training. We definitely need to get more comfortable with prescribing resistance and strength training because there's a lot of research around how that improves insulin sensitivity and for women as well with polycystic ovarian syndrome, really important. And yet people are afraid to talk about resistance training when it is coupled with women. Um, and I know that is a very general sweeping statement. Sadly, it's true. And we need to be more comfortable in really kind of honing that in. And also HIIT training. So high-intensity interval training can be really beneficial for these type of clientele as well. And also it's great because it's fast, it's you're done, you're in, you're out. So for time poor, this type of exercise can be really beneficial as well. I know that not everyone can make a prescription on exercise because don't, we don't have the qualifications, but what would you generally recommend to people with resistance training, like how often and how long? Yeah, so I typically, again, you have to modify it based on their realistic um, ability to do exercise. Yes. So, for example, let's start with someone who can train five days, let's say, that are committed to that. Then I would try to do strength and resistance training two days a week, um, two days out of the five. For someone who can only do three, it might be one of those days. So it's that kind of ratio that you're trying to um, have. And let's not forget that strength training comes in many forms. So for women, like I mentioned, I see they come to me and they like they say to me, I do a lot of Pilates. Is that okay? And I'm like, that's perfect because you're using a lot of strength and doing a lot of strength work in that type of exercise. So very happy for them to continue that type of um, activity. And then it might just be additional body weight activity in those situations and to do some more resistance training with additional weights because the more they do, the more improvements that we see. In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we discuss hypertension with integrative cardiologist Dr. Jason Kaplan, functional dietitian Robbie Clark, and naturopath Dr. Brad McEwen. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept.